This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by our pals at West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery at wcscreens.com. If you have needs with screen printing, embroidery, or more, make a beeline for wcscreens.com. They have nationwide shipping and wholesale pricing. Not only are they big supporters of this podcast, but like you, they are also diehard fans of the Fighting Irish. WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Hey, glad you're here today. We are going to delve into the life of John R. Flynn, a former Irish football player turned crime fighter who joined forces with legendary G-Man, Elliot Ness, hence the dark, ominous, noir music a moment ago. The echoes of the gridiron meet the pulse-pounding rhythms of crime fighting. The roar of the stadium blends with the pursuit of justice on the mean streets. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and this is episode number 91, the first offering of 2024. I think I have a mighty good one for this episode, but this one will not only mark the start of the calendar year, but also the football offseason. The Irish capped off a 10-3 campaign this past week with a sweeping, dominant, 40-8 victory over the Oregon State Beavers at the Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl. While the win clinched the Irish's sixth double-digit winning season in the past seven years, it thus does mark the beginning of the slow march to August 31st, when the Irish will kick off the season in College Station, Texas, against the Aggies of Texas A&M. Well, 2024 also marks the fifth anniversary of the show, so there is also that, and Barring any unforeseen circumstances, we will also be hitting episode number 100 this year. So hopefully I can pull off something special for that one. A quick acknowledgement here to the show's financial sponsors. We call them the Consensus All-Americans around these parts. These folks have either contributed significantly in the past or are currently donating to the show's efforts, and they are Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, author and friend Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, and my good pal Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana. If you'd like to chip in and make the muster roll of the Consensus All-Americans, please, as always, visit paypal.me slash onwardtovictory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash onwardtovictorypodcast for monthly contributions. I'd be remiss not to mention that the show is powered by West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery at wcscreens.com. So please jump over to them with any screen printing, embroidery needs, or whatever. And I appreciate you all. At any rate, this isn't actually the episode I had planned, but 
I was getting a head start on my New Year's resolution of reading 30 books. And so for my first one, I'd been working on already. So again, head start, but it was on something, a topic that I am like kind of near and dear to uh, personally. But I stumbled on a little anecdote while reading this book that sent me down a significant rabbit hole for a few days. And this is kind of the uh, product of that. But I was reading a book called Elliot Ness, The Rise and Fall of an American Hero by Douglas Perry, when on page 150, I read the following passage. Reporters who had sat through a boring budget meeting one night had learned that John R. Flynn, Elliot's executive assistant, would be in charge of a small group of civilian investigators who will visit precinct stations and inspect the work of policemen on beats and in cruising squads. Flynn, a 37-year-old lawyer and former Notre Dame football player, seemed ideally suited for the role. He was six foot four inches tall with broad shoulders, slicked back hair, and the kind of abbreviated lip rug that Germany's new fascist leader was making fashionable. He looked more like a gung-ho safety director than his boss, Elliot Ness, end quote. Needless to say, as a bit of a longtime Elliot Ness fan, this mention of Notre Dame football in this biography definitely perked up my interest. And um, I'm also a, happen to be a big fan of comic strip hero Dick Tracy, who was inspired by Elliot Ness. And if you're otherwise not aware or fully aware of who Elliot Ness was, well, just buckle in because we're going to talk about that. But I just knew this was one I had to tackle. And to my knowledge, after, and well, this was confirmed after kind of doing a cursory internet search, I'm not sure John R. Flynn has been much discussed either as a Notre Dame football player or as Elliot Ness's executive assistant safety director in the city of Cleveland. So we're going to tackle both of these. And unexpectedly, this one also ended up hitting home, geographically anyway, in a very significant way that I never would have guessed. So here you go. I hope you enjoy From the Gridiron to the G-Men, John R. Flynn's Pursuit of Justice with Elliot Ness, right after this. dark ditty, that crime-fighting noir stage setter. That music is by uh, Darren Curtis, by the way. John Richard Flynn was born in Prattsburg, New York on April 27, 1898. Prattsburg is upstate New York, a small burg of about 2,000 people, and is about 60 miles south of Rochester, New York, which is the nearest major city. At some point, or at least according to the Notre Dame student newspaper, his family moved to Syracuse, New York, again at some point before he was a collegian. But John showed incredible promise as a youngster, and had many gifts. One might even say he had the trifecta. He was very intelligent, he was artistic, and he was athletic. So he ends up showing up at the University of Notre Dame to study law in 1920, and he actually goes out for the freshman football team. He's a little old for the team or for being a freshman because Flynn actually did take a turn serving in the military during World War I. So he was essentially a 22-year-old freshman, which 
I get asked this quite a bit when we talk about the ages of Knut Rockne and George Gipp when they were freshmen, which they were about the same age. Uh, this actually wasn't totally uncommon during this time for one reason or another. The war was a big reason, but also a lot of folks, like Rockney, for instance, uh, worked for a few years to save up money to go to college. But on the gridiron, though, 1920 is certainly a watershed year for Notre Dame football. Not only was a national championship secured, but it was done with perhaps the best football player in Notre Dame history in the backfield. And that would, of course, be the aforementioned George Gipp. So Flynn gets to bear witness to this historic year, uh, very up close and very personally. John, who is a sturdy, physical, broad-shouldered guy, plays tackle for the freshman team, who went on to win their only two games that season, which was a 13-7 victory over Culver. And I'm not sure if that was Culver Military Academy or Culver High School, but a victory nonetheless and an 18-7 win over the Fort Wayne Friars, which was a semi-professional outfit that actually Coach Knut Rockney had taken a turn with a few years before. So when I mentioned that John had an up-close and personal look at Gip as a freshman, well, the 1920 Notre Dame Football Review solidifies just that. In addition to winning their two games, quote, day after day, they, being the freshmen, withstood the murderous onslaughts of the varsity while that powerful machine was making ready for the games which achieved for it the name of being the best gridiron aggregation of 1920, end quote. So yeah, basically they were the scout team, and so uh, guys like John would have had the pleasure, misfortune, I don't know, of trying to tackle guys like George Gipp on a daily basis during practice as they were preparing for the games on Saturday. But additionally, starting in the spring-summer of 1921, Flynn went out for the track and field team, and he happened to be one of the best shot putters in the program. He routinely finished in the top three during meets. In fact, during the 1921 collegiate state meet, which Notre Dame won, by the way, he did place top three in the state. And here's another one about that particular meet. Buck Shaw, who was perhaps one of Coach Rockney's greatest tackles and place kickers for that matter, set the state record for the longest shot put throw. So naturally, our man Flynn finished just behind him. In the fall of 1921, John once again went out for the football team. And the team went 10-1, just dropping one 10-7 game to Iowa. But the 1921 Football Review praised Flynn for his work with the reserves. Quote, Then there's Flynn, that happy-go-lucky six-foot giant from the city of Syracuse, a guard that goes at his heavy work with vengeance. End quote. So by this time, Flynn had actually moved from tackle to guard, but he was pretty much a lineman. That's what he was. Uh, what was actually really neat to see in this particular issue of the 1921 Notre Dame Football Review, that is, is that John actually wrote a poem, and it went something like this. It was called Hail Notre Dame. When the close of the day has come, sweet those memories ring. Round us near our men sincere. To you their praises sing. The golden sun at God's west gate reflects your blue on high. Your colors, alma mater, were never born to die. Hail Notre Dame, your glorious fame, loyal sons uphold. Deep devotion... Lasting love we give the blue and gold. Revere we must this sacred trust, 
forever he thy fame. We offer thee this victory, alma mater, Notre Dame. And it's signed Flynn, 23, to signify class of 1923. Not too shabby at all, as far as prose is concerned. Now, I mentioned the trifecta. Uh, clearly, John can play some sports, and yes, he was at Notre Dame studying law, and yes, he also had a gift for the arts also. Aside from some writing here and there, he also dabbled in music. According to the December 10th, 1921 issue of the school newspaper, The Scholastic, quote, John R. Flynn, the local songwriter and athlete, has announced that his latest song, The Angels Will Envy Your Smile, Mother Mine, is ready for distribution, end quote. So he also helped with some of the college's vocal ensembles as well. So we have definitely a little bit of a musical streak. But let's get back to the football field here for a moment. So John's academic career at Notre Dame, as best I can tell, spanned three years. And so his football career also spanned three years. So that 1922 season, which would have been his third season, is I guess technically his senior year because he did graduate in 1923. But we're talking about fall of 1922 here. This is when the four horsemen were all sophomores and starting to emerge as a dominant force for the program. So they lost one game to Nebraska that season, 1922. It was actually the first of only two losses the Horsemen experienced together as a unit. Coincidentally, the second one was in 1923 to Nebraska again. Now, of course, the team wouldn't lose any games in 1924, but in 1923, the 8-1-1 mark was still fairly successful, even by Coach Knut Rockney's lofty standards. John saw quite a bit of time at tackle, and he was certainly a player in very heavy rotation. So to go back to the football review, here is the summation about John in the 1922 edition. Quote, Big John is a man of many deeds, and his deeds have brought him recognition in many lines, not the least of which is the athletic line, or more concretely, the football line. John tackled a big job when he set his mind on tackling opposing teams and competing tackles, but he acquitted himself nobly and earned for himself a monogram in football as well as track. John, you see, tackles the shot put also. We can be sure of many points in the track scoring next spring when John tosses the pebble around the lot, end quote. So John was certainly a fine athlete at Notre Dame. I would describe him on the football side as solid. He was good depth for some really good Rockney-coached teams. And based on when his career took place at Notre Dame, again, he had the opportunity, I guess I'll say, to watch that magical 1920 season of George Gipp um, and then kind of go through the passing of George Gipp and experience that as a student and then all the way up through the emergence of the Four Horsemen. So while he was a Notre Dame football player, he definitely got to see a lot, uh, a lot and some of the things that we talk about today as just being incredibly significant for the program. But our man did indeed graduate from the university in 1923 with a degree in law. It was at some point during John's time at Notre Dame as a student that he fell in love with a woman named Beatrice Baltes. It's B-A-L-T-E-S. I think it's got to be German. But after doing some digging, I found that she, Beatrice that is, was a Fort Wayne, Indiana native and a student at nearby St. Mary's College. 
While she was there at St. Mary's, she joined the Alpha Omega sorority, which I only know because the newspapers published this, along with the fact that she hosted a few of her sorority mates at her initiation at the family's home on Forest Park Boulevard in Fort Wayne. Forest Park Boulevard is kind of one of those older neighborhoods, and if you're kind of from the Fort Wayne area, there's a good chance you might know what section of town this is, but this is actually about a five-minute drive from where I grew up in Fort Wayne. Fun fact. But anyway, the two ultimately married in Fort Wayne in 1925 and moved to Cleveland at some point shortly thereafter. By 1927, John was settled into Cleveland and even being named president of the Cleveland Notre Dame Club, an organization which counted some of the Miller brothers in its membership, mind you. So the Flynns are educated, they're newly married, and they are settling in just fine in their new home of Cleveland, Ohio. So let's pause the Flynns for a moment and switch gears over to the Windy City. That'd be Chicago around this time. Two more figures step to the forefront. First is the infamous gangster Al Capone. This is the very same Capone that might have, might have, had a hand in the death of Knut Rockne in 1931, but that's another story. At any rate, I'm going to move at about a 30,000-foot level here for just a second. The highly controversial Volstead Act was passed in 1919 and began to be enforced in early 1920. Highly controversial, yes, the Volstead Act banned the manufacture and sale of alcoholic beverages. Pretty much as soon as it went into effect, the law was being broken. And it was up to the feds and the local municipal police departments, who were woefully unprepared, to enforce the act. In 1925, about the same time Flynn got married in Fort Wayne, Capone was made head of the Chicago Outfit, a group of gangsters based on Chicago's South Side. But slowly and steadily, and very publicly, he took over the bootleg liquor game in his adopted hometown of Chicago and beyond. And just so it's clear, it was liquor, it was gambling, it was prostitution, you name it. Capone had his hand in pretty much everything. But why people liked him was because he was very charismatic and very generous, and that captured the hearts of many Americans, particularly as the Great Depression would later rack the country in the late 20s and the early 30s. He was essentially giving the people what they wanted. Most people thought the Volstead Act was unjust and a kind of an overstep by the federal government. And Al Capone actually once famously said, when I sell liquor, it's called bootlegging. When my patrons serve it on Lakeshore Drive, it's called hospitality. And well, that level of candor really resonated with folks. And not to mention, again, he was charismatic and gregarious and generous even. And again, while we're talking about the Great Depression era here, that resonated with folks also. But Al Capone was also brutal. And I mean very brutal. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre in February of 1929 is your perfect example of this when uh, Capone's men, uh, in which a couple of them dressed up like police officers, rounded up seven members of the rival Northside Gang. This is in broad daylight and uh, lined them up against a wall and executed them. 
This was when the public sentiment kind of began to sway. Folks were really like, what the hell is going on here? But the infrastructure of the Department of Prohibition and not to mention local police departments were not nearly well equipped enough to handle the situation, nor handle the bootlegging rackets, Al Capone, none of it, not one bit. And it also didn't help that corruption was rampant among law enforcement at this time. Everybody seemingly up and down the hallways of your average police department was getting a cut from a bootlegger to look the other way. It was all pretty much a crap storm. I stopped just short of saying the word I wanted to use there. But what they needed was someone like Elliot Ness. But why was Elliot Ness the perfect guy for the job of cleaning up the illicit liquor manufacturing industry? Like the rest of us, he was very flawed in many respects, but professionally, he shot straight. He thought strategically, yet practically, and perhaps most importantly, he couldn't be bought off by Capone, or any other gangster for that matter. I mean, Ness would bust his own father for a crime if he had to. <laughs> Probably not his mother, though. Uh, Ness was a little bit of a classic mama's boy, but the Bureau of Prohibition decided that a small, nimble, clandestine, incorruptible squad of men were needed to infiltrate the bootlegging gangs, hit the pavement, and just do it. So Elliot Ness was actually plucked from relative obscurity to lead the squad, which, if you have seen the Kevin Costner movie, when Kevin Costner himself plays Ness and Robert De Niro plays Al Capone, this squad was really effective in tamping down the bootleggers, shutting down or destroying hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of operation and supply, which costed Capone millions of dollars. So to keep the timeline a bit fluid here, Ness took charge in late 1930. Oh, Ness's Squad and the Costner movie, as well as the TV show of the 50s, 60s, were known and called The Untouchables. Ness would become a household name. And again, when cartoonist Chester Gould created a new comic strip character, he called him Plain Clothes Tracy, and it was based on Ness. The character would soon be called Dick Tracy. But it wasn't Ness who took down Capone, although Ness definitely did, and his men for that matter, did cause Al Capone a ton of inconvenience. But the honor of taking down Capone went to Uncle Sam himself. Capone was ultimately arrested and indicted for not paying income tax. This was June 1931. So again, Elliot's a national celebrity, and Capone gets taken down in June of 1931, and after that, Ness was one of those guys who was so laser-focused on something all the time, or, or many things, but like the one thing that he was absolutely had all of his focus on, he thought of night and day, was Al Capone. So once Al Capone went away, Ness, you know, kind of floundered a little bit. He definitely still busted up the, the liquor rackets and all of that, all the illicit bootlegging, but he was looking for a new challenge, and so he stayed in Chicago until December 1935, but then... He was hired as the city of Cleveland's safety director, where he would oversee both the police and fire departments. And this happens to be where our stories collide. So now we're in 1935. John Flynn has been in Cleveland for about a decade, and he worked very hard to get himself well-connected 
which he succeeded at. John's now 37, a successful attorney, a World War I veteran, a noted conservative voice in Cleveland. Interestingly, though, the latter would have put him at odds with a certain Ray Miller, himself a Notre Dame alum and football player and brother of Don Miller of Four Horsemen fame and the uncle to future All-American Creighton Miller. Anyway, Ray was an ardent progressive, and he served as mayor of Cleveland in 1932 and 1933, back when the mayor served two-year terms in the city. I just thought that was interesting because, of course, Flynn and Ray's brother, uh, Don, again, four horsemen, would have been teammates while at the University of Notre Dame. And again, just serves as a reminder that the uh, Notre Dame football player was the mayor of Cleveland and one that came from a fairly famous family at that. But not long after Elliot landed in Cleveland as safety director, he tabbed Guess Who to be the executive assistant to the safety director, basically his number two guy. Oh, that'd be John Richard Flynn. The December 29th, 1935 issue of The Plain Dealer said that Flynn, quote, has the military and legal training that makes him conform to Ness's idea of a well-trained investigator, end quote. Just two days later, he was sworn into the position. Essentially, it went like this. Ness, number one. Flynn, number two. Flynn's salary was reported at $4,200 a year, equivalent to about $93,000 today. This is pretty good money during the Great Depression in particular. But Flynn's direct responsibility was to serve as a conduit between the officers and Ness himself. Here's a quote from Ness in the January 10th, 1936 issue of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Quote, Please instruct all men that John R. Flynn is available to hear their suggestions, complaints, or grievances at any time or any place should they feel that a visit to the safety director's office might in some way embarrass them. End quote. So how's that sound for a job? <laughs> Cleveland's police department, like many cities, big and small at the time, struggled with laxity and had issues with corruption. Ness being Ness, he wanted to snuff that out. But whipping the police department into shape wasn't the only aspect of the job. It was all-encompassing, and to illustrate this, just four days into his tenure, January 4th, 1936, Flynn was dispatched to the Joanna Home for the Aged in Cleveland, where a house fire had killed two residents. He was sent there to do some investigating. And what he found was there were 26 people living in the house, far more than the capacity allowed for. So while Ness and Flynn spent a bulk of 1936 busting cops for corruption, more on that in a bit, they also dedicated time to a favorite Ness pastime which was busting the illicit manufacturing of intoxicating beverages. But also, some of Ness and Flynn's strategic priorities were cleaning up juvenile delinquency and traffic safety. As for the former around this time, folks in law enforcement didn't think about stunting would-be criminals when they were juveniles and kind of trying to redirect them into something uh, different. So, for instance, Elliot incorporated a Boy Scout program in some of the toughest neighborhoods in Cleveland to try to, again, redirect would-be criminals into something productive for them. And he actually, as the scout leaders, he would get former criminals or police officers, again, folks who could have a positive impact on the juveniles, again, before 
they became delinquents. And traffic safety, uh, I mean, Cleveland had one of the highest uh, rates of traffic accidents of any city in the country. So they dedicate a lot of time to kind of clean up the streets as well from an automotive perspective. Now, as if the pair didn't already have their work cut out for them, there was some other damn serious stuff going on in the city, namely the Cleveland torso murderer who was on the loose. This was and still is a pretty harrowing episode in Cleveland history. Throughout 1935 and 1936 and beyond, body parts of Clevelanders, uh, namely the working poor, prostitutes, or those living in the shanty towns were found. The bodies, without exception, were always found decapitated with what Elliot and the coroner agreed was with surgeon-like precision. It flummoxed Elliot and Flynn and the rest of the department and scared the absolute hell out of greater Cleveland. Sometimes body parts were found in the Cuyahoga River. Other times the body parts were dismembered, wrapped in butcher paper, and stored in bushel baskets to be found in some public place. It was just terrible, uh, but look it up on the internet if you're curious. But I only bring it up too because uh, it was a huge burden on the men, Ness and Flynn, while they worked together. Ness even sent Flynn to Newcastle, Pennsylvania, when a similar killing occurred to see if there were any patterns or similarities between the two. He didn't find any, and they would never find the Cleveland Torso murderer, and they still haven't identified a number of the victims. But again, when I talk about this job being all-encompassing as safety director, I found this one also pretty interesting. This was the dog days of summer 1936. Elliot told the local paper that women should feel empowered to wear shorts while walking down the street. Flynn, being a bit of a pragmatist, added, quote, Generous exposure to the sun can be nothing but beneficial, end quote. But back to police corruption. It's about halfway through 1936 that Flynn starts to get in some hot water with Ness. I mentioned that Ness was a hardliner. Well, Flynn was a bit more malleable, so to speak. He was an attorney with political aspirations. While Ness famously spent 100 consecutive days off the radar in the summer of 1936, looking for and building on leads for police corruption cases, Flynn was left in charge. John had a bit of an understanding, again, that his position was a political one of sorts. And again, I mentioned he had political ambitions, as we will soon cover. Uh, but Ness was relentless. He didn't care how long you'd been with the department or who your dad or uncle was. If he smelled a rat, he wanted you out. So Flynn was the Republic precinct chairman for Shaker Heights. And again, he had political aspirations. So while Ness was out of the office that summer, John handpicked and appointed a young man to the police force, which jumped several other more qualified candidates in the process. The man John picked just happened to be the nephew of a well-connected police captain who, according to Ness biography, again, Perry, was, quote, known to be dirty as an oil slick, end quote. So Ness was actually gunning for that uncle for corruption, and he was super pissed that the nephew was now slated to join the force. So he halted that appointment. Needless to say, he was not happy about it. But as it were, Ness then soon found that Flynn was a guy who politicians could go for for little favors to be done. So Flynn may have approached his role a little bit more politically, 
which I surmise, but Ness was a cop, and he thought of himself as a cop, and after the, up to that point, he was squeaky clean professionally, completely above reproach. So, again, this didn't sit well with Elliot. Another officer who Elliot had in the crosshairs was a man named Harwood. He was also a captain, was known to take bribes, but otherwise he was generally well-liked and enjoyed a long tenure on the force. Elliot was hellbent to see that Harwood didn't enjoy his time remaining on the force and intended to have him formally brought up on charges. But John tried to push Harwood's retirement papers with a full pension through before the charges could materialize. It was fairly obvious to Elliot and the general public that John was trying to cover for a friend. And Elliot went as far as the Civil Service Board to stop to make sure these retirement papers could not go through. And then eventually Harwood went to court, and Flynn was frustrated by this whole episode. I assume that maybe he and Harwood were friends or acquaintances, or perhaps they had deep connections. But at any rate, during Harwood's trial, he told a reporter just how he felt about the whole thing. He called Ness's crusade against dirty officers worthless, and that he didn't think Harwood would be found guilty, and that the city would have just saved thousands of dollars by accepting his resignation. However, by the end of the week, Harwood was found guilty, and Flynn's quotes were pasted all over the paper. So he resigned that same week. This is December 1936, mind you. So his tenure with Elliot was just about a year. And just so it's clear, Elliot really, really liked and respected John. He acknowledges this publicly over and over again for the next couple years, actually. It was strictly business. And to be fair, Elliot had a tendency to run through colleagues because of just how he viewed his work. You have to understand, too, that law enforcement at this time was very different than now. Elliot was trying to modernize the whole thing, but, man, it took a lot of work to reverse centuries of how policing and law enforcement had worked. John landed on his feet. He went back to lawyering, and he sharpened his political aspirations. He actually ran for Ohio State Senate in 1938. He was unsuccessful. In 1939, he ran for mayor of Shaker Heights as a Republican, but he was roundly defeated by the incumbent by a margin of 4,540 votes to 698. Ouch. So, my math, if my math is correct, that was a, an approximate 87 to 13% margin. But to be fair, Elliot Ness also ran for a political office in 1947. He ran for the mayor of Cleveland. Now, I mentioned that Ness didn't view his job as a political one, and he was woefully unprepared for this political race. He just didn't play the game the same way, and he was absolutely embarrassed in 1947. He was soundly defeated by a 2-to-1 margin, 67 to 33% essentially, for the mayor of Cleveland. And again, he was so out of touch with how politics worked that, you know, it was early in the evening on election night when it was clear that he was going to get absolutely demolished at the polls that Elliot showed up at Thomas Burke's house. So Burke was the mayor and he was also the he was the incumbent and he was also the one who was going to win in a landslide against Elliot in 1947. But Elliot showed up at Burke's house and kind of just 
joined in the party. He gave his concession speech there, but then he spent the entire evening celebrating uh, with Burke's supporters at Burke's house. So again, Elliot was, that was kind of Elliot in a sense. He, he didn't really know how these things worked, and he wasn't particularly good at the politics stuff. But political defeats aside, when World War II broke out, John enlisted in the Air Force as a captain. And he had actually served in the Ohio National Guard as a first lieutenant for several years, likely all throughout the 1930s. So he formally joined up in July of 1942. And he ultimately rose to the rank of colonel. And when the war was over, he landed back in Fort Wayne in around 1949, to resume his law practice. He moved there with Beatrice and their son, John Jr., and they moved to Beatrice's family's home on Forest Park Boulevard. On April 12, 1956, John died suddenly at age 57. He was actually just before his 58th birthday. His funeral was at St. Jude's Catholic Church, and he is buried at the Catholic Cemetery on Lake Avenue in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I'd be remiss not to mention St. Jude is where I and a slew of my siblings attended school and many of us had our first communion. So there's that as well. Elliot Ness died just about a year later. He was 54 and nearly penniless. He never did live to see his name become an iconic one among Americans. At any rate, I hope you enjoyed that. It was really awesome putting it together. And that was a little something I called From the Gridiron to the G-Men, John R. Flynn's Pursuit of Justice with Elliot Ness. And I'll be back with show wrap. Well, I guess that was that, and I hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, I hadn't seen this story documented, with the exception of just a kind of a few paragraphs in the Douglas Perry book, again called Elliot Ness, The Rise and Fall of an American Hero. I hadn't seen it really documented, and perhaps it has been, and I just missed it. But it was really fun to put together. I have a really strong passion, obviously, for Notre Dame football and kind of finding these stories, but I love Elliot Ness. I think in some respects his life was every bit more interesting even than the stories that were written about him mostly were fictional or perhaps some elements of the truth were taken but still again spun into some sensational story and in some respects many respects even Eliot's life was even more exciting than these works of fiction and he was a very very interesting guy and again flawed very flawed actually but but that's really what makes him and all of us interesting, right? And as far as John Flynn is concerned, it's good to kind of shine a light on a guy who served his country honorably during both world wars, played for some really good Rockney teams, and was a solid contributor, and had a long career of public service uh, afterwards. And it was great to kind of highlight the collision of these two guys. So I really hope you enjoyed that. If you did, Please make sure you like, subscribe, share the episode with your family, your friends, whomever you think might find it interesting. We wrapped up 2023 at the easily, hands down, the most successful year in show history. So as we vault into the fifth year, we've got some milestones to celebrate, as I kind of mentioned at the top of the show. So stick around. Again, like, subscribe, do whatever it is that you got to do to make sure that you're being alerted to all of the latest offerings.
things. 2024 is going to be a great year. And if you'd like to contribute monetarily to the show, throw a, throw into the collection baskets, if you will, please visit paypal.me slash onward to victory or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. Anything is appreciated and anything keeps the lights on, let me tell you. So with that, I am going to sign off. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. Irish.